Good afternoon or good evening, whenever you choose to listen to this podcast. I'm Dave Brzezicki, and welcome to The Heart of Teaching. So you got to love that entry music. That's the uh, entry music for the original Batman television series that uh, premiered in the 1960s. It's awesome. Now, my entry music and the exit music and all the sound editing and all the behind the scenes, that's all done by Nathan Rivers, my producer. And uh, this podcast would never happen without him. So just a huge shout out to Nathan for all the things that he does for me. So today what we're going to focus on, we're going to talk about jobs and occupations for our students. So as teachers, our role will often be to guide and support our students regarding their occupations and, and give them all the resources so that they can be successful. And you'll remember the very first podcast, right? The, the secret of life. And you'll remember that the secret of life is find a job that's a passion and you never have to work another day in your life. So speaking of that, there's all types of support for traditional jobs. So what I thought I'd like to do today, and maybe several podcasts down the, the, down the road, um, I'd like to deal with non-traditional occupations. Let me give you an example. So what if you wanted to become an actor, or per perhaps you want to be a professional athlete, or maybe you want to become a professional coach, or how about a, a TV personality like a, a meteorologist, which brings us to today's episode. So many of you know that I'm a, a big comic book guy. So I've been collecting for about 52 years. I actually had a, a room in my house built specially for my comic books. N no kidding. So I probably have about, probably about 16,000 books. So I love all that stuff. I love the movies, the memorabilia, all the pop culture things. You, you kind of get the picture. So in our house, you spell nerd, D-A-V-E. So speaking of comic books, what do you do if you want to break into the industry? And maybe you want to be an artist or perhaps you want to be a writer. So what's available to you? And if you're curious about that, this episode is for you. So today I've got Ed Brisson, who was originally from Vancouver with me. And Ed's written uh, for Image Comics, DC Comics, and he's written for Marvel as well. He's been nominated for several Joe Schuster Awards, which recognizes the top comic book writer in the nation. Now, Joe Schuster was originally the artist who uh, drew Superman in the 1930s. So Ed's going to be with us today, and uh, he's going to share his journey and all the experiences he had and perhaps help some of the students that are looking to get into that field. So sit back and enjoy. Ed, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Are you? You're living the dream? I'm doing great, yeah. Yeah, I think so. Awesome. It's a lazy Sunday morning, so. Awesome. Hey, can you tell me what, uh, what are you currently working on? Or, or who are you working for and what are you working on? Yeah, so uh, all projects I'm currently working on haven't been announced yet, so I, I, they're sort of uh, under lock and key. But uh, I'm currently working for Marvel, where I've been working for the last four years. Um, you know, I've written books for them, such as Old Man Logan, Iron Fist, X-Men, uh, X-Force. I did a little bit of Alpha Flight. Uh, and a bunch of other books uh, as well. Um, and I'm currently working on a couple of creator-owned things um, for some some other publishers, but again, not not announced, so I can't say what they are. But I've done plenty of creator-owned work in the past. Uh, at Image, I did a book called Comeback, another Sheltered, uh, The Violent, The Field, and I know there's one, The Mantle. Uh, I knew I was missing something there. So uh, how many so, years? Yeah. How many years have you been uh, in the industry now? Uh, as a writer, I've been, my first published work came out in 2012. So I, we just crossed the eight year mark a couple weeks ago. Well, congratulations. Thanks. What company was that for? Was that Image? That was Image. My first book came out through Image. That was Comeback. Uh, I think it was November 21st, uh, uh, 2012, which I only remember because uh, that's the, the artist's birthday. Uh, it came out on his birthday. Is that the his last name? Is that Christmas? Is that his last name? No, Johnny Christmas and I did Sheltered. Okay. Uh, comeback was me and Michael Walsh, who's a, an artist based out of Hamilton. Now, when you're talking about that book, kind of a cool story with it you might want to share with the uh, the audience. So you have an opportunity there of uh, having that made into a movie. Is that right? Yeah, so Comeback has uh, currently been optioned for a film, which, which is actually the third time that it's been optioned for either a film or TV. Uh, but right now, um, it, uh, it's with a, a director named Nacho Vigalando, 
who's a Spanish director who I, I was a big fan of before he, he optioned the film. He did a film called Time Crimes that came out about 10 years ago. That's incredible. Recently did a film called Colossal with Jason Sudeikis and um, Anne Hathaway. But uh, yeah, so right now it's sort of uh, not quite in limbo. It, it's in a weird uh, position because of the pandemic. But uh, uh, it's of all the projects I've had optioned over the years, this one looks like the closest to actually making it to screen, which is it's kind of like a almost like a lottery once you get optioned whether or not you're going to make it to screen. But it's looking it's looking pretty good. I don't want to be overly confident or cocky, but. Fingers crossed. So when we were talking earlier, it's Sony, right? Sony's putting it together? Is no, it... Sony had optioned it before. Okay. Uh, and it lap the option lapsed, uh, and the film went into something which is called uh, Turnaround. Uh, and this is all sort of like inside baseball stuff, but it's in Turnaround. Uh, Nacho Villando had already written a script for it. And so he has taken that script, uh, teamed up with a couple producers, and is working on financing at the moment to to fund making this film and so who would ultimately release it is still sort of a question mark but i know that there are a lot of conversations going on right now he's big time i've heard of him before and i've watched a couple of his like he he's like he's big that's huge yeah, it's a real deal yeah now you'd also said when we were talking you said something about instead of just doing the uh, you know them taking your project you're also looking at kind of the business side of things with the movie. You want to explain what that is? That's very that's very interesting. Yeah, I think just in general uh, with comics and, and film, uh, I'm trying to. It, it used to be when I started out, you know, I have a you know I have an agent who's who's based out of Los Angeles who who sort of shops my projects around, which means that they take them to producers, they take them to film studios to try and sell the film rights. And usually, I I just was sort of I, I used to be hands off with that let them handle it not really get involved if they sell it that's fine uh but lately i've been trying to get more involved uh so i can have a little bit of of control um you know and being the the creator of the property you don't honestly once it goes to hollywood it, it's largely out of your hands you don't get to exert a lot of control uh but where i can i'm i'm trying to and one of the ways is that now normally if um if a film gets options, part of our contract is that we'll get on, we get on as executive producers, which sometimes can just be sort of a, uh, uh, what's the term? It, it's sort of just a, a, a position in name with no real power. Uh, and, and sometimes it gives you a little bit of sway. So just trying to have a little bit of control or, or saying what the final product looks like. Cause I have had in the past where I've optioned uh, a comic for uh, TV where the script for the pilot, which ended up not going forward, it, that was another project where it got options. It got pretty far along. There was a pilot script for the, which, you know, for those that don't know, know the pilot is usually the first episode of a TV series. Studios will make those um, as sort of a proof of concept to see if, you know, to see if they want to go forward with the series. Um, and yeah, there was another project where the, the script was written and came in and it was so, I'm okay with like it being something different than, than what we had created. Right. But there were so many ideas in there that were just counter to anything I would ever do. Uh, and, and something oh. just kind of hit a nerve in that like, you know, the product wasn't something I'd want my name on. So I, uh, you know, trying a little bit more to at least be involved enough that I can sort of have my say that I can be in the room. Um, that doesn't mean they're always going to pay attention to anything I say, but it at least gives me the opportunity to say what I need to say. Yeah. It's sort of like, that's your baby. And then they just completely do something that, uh, wasn't in the original content and it's your whole ideas, which it's kind of your legacy of that product. Right. And they get rid of it. That's not cool. For sure. Yeah. And, and I'm, I, you know, it's a, it's a collaborative thing. Once it's out of your hand, like once it's option, Generally, they can do whatever they want. Uh, sometimes they they'll just take your comic as, as a as a starting point, and sometimes it comes in it's just like not recognizable anymore uh, as being the same thing. Um, and that's like it's fine, you know. I like to see other people's interpretations on something I've done, but 
yeah, like I said, in, the, in this one instance that I, I'm talking about, it was just a case where like there was some some stuff in there that uh, was, you know, uh, uh, I guess kind of upsetting just in, in context of the rest of the story, which is I, I can't get into specifically what project it was, but right. Uh, it was just a weird, a lot of weird decisions made by the scriptwriter, and so you know, I, I just try and put myself in a position where I can at least give feedback. Right, because it is ultimately it's your product. I mean, that's what you're sure. selling, right? It's your name on it. So, yeah. is there like the funding then? So, if you're getting, as an example, if they've optioned, do you get some money up front, or, or does it depend on the contract that you sign? Yeah, it all depends on the project. Uh, generally, what happens is. You get options, um, and they'll pay you X amount, which is usually 10% of the purchase price. Okay. Um, so, and th those prices can sway like wildly, like, um, but, uh, yeah, you, you get 10% as an option, which is an option is kind of like you're all of a sudden going steady with that producer or that production company. Right. It means that you're not going to look at other producers or production companies until their option expires. That's a good analogy. And the option usually, usually lasts about a year to 18 months, uh, at which point there's usually something built into the contract where they can re-option it for a longer period of time, which generally they're going to need to do. It takes a very long time. Uh, to make a film or a TV series, like just to get it to the point where you're actually filming, there, there's so much um, sort of red tape that needs to be, you know, uh, needs to be cleared. There's so many obstacles to, to get past to actually get something to TV and film. I think I don't know what the percentage was, but I, I believe it's only something like it's got to be something under five percent of films and uh, projects that get option that actually make it to screen, whether it's film or TV. Oh, okay. And if you get to be like the executive producer, though, that's another, I would assume that's another uh, another paycheck for you because you've now got it. Yeah. That, so that's a, yeah, that, it's weird. Depending on the project, I, I've discovered that even though, you know, they're basing a whole TV series or a film on something that, uh, you know, me and an artist created together, um, you know, the, the, the fee can be good, but like uh, on a TV series, it, we had one that we were working on last year that uh, that is sort of in, in limbo right now. But um, our fee for the artists and I for being executive producers, which is sort of largely a title position, it just it does allow us a position only in title. Sorry, uh, but it does allow us, like I said, to have a little bit more of a voice in, in the process. Uh, that actually pays more what? than the option. Yeah, it's a it's a weird setup, but you know it, it's what it is. Um, That's it, crazy. That it, doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make sense to me either. But here we are. Yeah. Well, yeah. I guess it's they've got the system set up, and you sort of have to follow the uh, follow you the trail. You gotta figure out a way to navigate it. Yeah. So the, like I said, I used to, I used to be very hands off with it, but now now that I've realized that you know. The more you know about it, the the better you can sort of position yourself um, to benefit from them making something based on on your own creation. Uh, the better. Yeah, for sure. I mean, knowledge is power, right? The more information mm -hmm. you know. So, I guess the the big thing about doing the uh, the comic books into movies as well is if this if this does come to fruition and, and it becomes a movie, you've also got some clout now because you've got so many other properties out there. Is that correct? So yeah, you know, as long as the film doesn't tank at the box office, then yeah, uh, uh, it puts me in a pretty good position because you know uh, that one that they're developing now is based on Comeback. Uh, you know, aside from Comeback, I have six other uh, creator-owned projects um, that I, I've created. Wow. Um, and I guess there's two others that are called like Creator Shared, where the publisher and I share ownership versus yes. uh something that comes out through image where me and the artist own it uh, wholesale um and i guess like for f anyone listening who's not familiar with what creator own means it's just that you know it's a book that you know uh, myself and an artist develop together um 
and then would bring to a publisher afterwards and that publisher would release it. The publisher only retains in with true creator owned projects. The publisher retains only publishing rights. Yes. That means they can publish and disseminate the book in comic book form, uh, whether that's physical or digitally, uh, through sites like Comicsology. But, uh, the artist and I retain all other rights. So, you know, if we wanted to make a film, you know, if somebody wanted to make a film based on the pro property, then that goes through the artist and I, and we're the ones who benefit from them. If someone wants to make a board game, same thing. So that's a way that we can own and control that property versus, you know, when I work for Marvel, if I create a character for Marvel, um, or if I work on a, uh, on a series for them that becomes, you know, something that's later developed into a film, I don't actually own any claim to that. That's theirs. It's stories I'm creating for them based on their characters. Uh, so that's that's the difference for anyone listening who's not not aware. Um, no, that's great information, especially somebody breaking into the uh, or trying to break into the industry, right? I mean, that's huge sure, information. Yeah. And I mean, the whole purpose of the, the podcast, we talked before this, is just some people that are maybe looking at non-traditional occupations. And, and certainly with, uh, well, unfortunately, with COVID, we're, in, we're all in this cocoon. And uh, uh -huh. people are looking at, you know, opportunities outside of what the, the norm would be instead of being an accountant or maybe even a teacher. You've got people that uh, may want to, you know, work in the uh, the comic book field, which is, hey, it's it's going great guns. A lot of people didn't think it would be doing as well as it is. And we're, we're moving straight forward with that. So that's that's kind of cool. Yeah, well, that's, you know, in these sort of you know uncertain times escapism always tends to do fairly well yeah and uh, and so comics uh, there was you know there was a bump where it, everything was very very uncertain for for a period of time but uh, things seem to be sort of uh, battling back uh, quite well so with all this with all this information you've been giving out how did you get into the business? And I, I really, I'm not really sure. I know you were an artist first, where you were, where you were lettering. Yeah. So yeah, it's a, it's kind of a long story, but uh, bear with me, I guess. Um, I started out when I was in high school. I wanted to be a comic book artist uh, more than anything in the world. You know, um, at that time, Todd McFarlane was the biggest thing in comics. Um, he's Canadian, and for me, I you know as much as I had always been interested in comics and been reading my whole life was drawing you know drawing superhero stuff all the time uh but it, it never seemed real nor tangible because you know marvel and dc at the time were both based out of new york and it, it seemed like you had to live in in new york in order to work in the industry and you know being a kid living in Kelowna at the time you may as well have had to live on the moon like it, it was just not kind of in the realm of possibility yeah but when McFarlane broke out, I realized, oh, like, you know, it, it is a thing that uh, you can do from Canada and um, and uh, make a career of. So, yeah, I was I was drawing comics. I didn't, you know, I knew, uh, like, I didn't, I wanted to make my own stuff, but I wasn't a writer. And so um, I, through my local comic shop, met two writers who were ultimately kind of the same so i usually tend to lump them into like one person but uh you know i, I met them we went out and had you know uh, had a, a meeting like a lunch or whatever to talk about comics but the one thing that uh, the one problem i ran into bo with both of them um is they were both weirdly arrogant uh about sort of their talents and were very clear that they were sort of the big ideas behind this comic. And if I came on to draw their comic that, you know, it would be their name on the masthead and mine, you know, in, in small text below sort of, that was, you know, not necessarily word for word what they said, but sort of the general yeah, idea. Yeah, yeah. Right. And, uh, you know, as being, you know, I think I was 16, 17 when I met these two, I was like, you know, this, I don't, like that i don't feel comfortable with that uh, and to top it off they weren't terribly great writers so th there was sort of like an, an unearned cockiness that they had um so at that point I, I was like you know if if i'm gonna do this i'll just write my own scripts because I, I i i could see it was going to be a lot of hassle to work with these guys so i just started writing my own scripts at 17 and 
At 17, yeah, we just because this is you know this is pre-internet, right? right. So it, it, now people have the advantage that they can hop online, and if you're an artist looking for a writer, uh, that's like being a single man in Alaska, you know, or a single woman in Alaska. <laughs> sorry, if you're an artist working for looking for, there's there's a million writers out there, not that many um, uh, uh, competent artists. So anyway, I started writing stuff for myself. Um, and I did that for a long time. Like, I think the one cautionary tale is not to take as long as I did doing things. Um, I tend to be like, you know, in, in the tortoise and the hare, I'm definitely the tortoise. Um, I spent 16 years writing and drawing my own comics and uh, all sorts of different style, styles of stuff uh, and types of stories that I would then self-publish. Uh, I would make mini-comics, uh, which some folks call Ashcans now, yeah. which were like 8.5 by 11. You'd photocopy them out on 8.5 by 11, uh, paginated so that you could fold it in half, staple down the center, and you've got this little black-and-white sort of mini-comic. That, you know, when I lived in Kelowna, I would sell through the local record shops and comic shops and out of my backpack, uh, however I could, you know, sell them. And, uh, yeah, I did that, like I said, for 16 years. So from 94 until 2010, I was doing that. And I hit a point in 2010 where I was 35 and I was kind of like, at that point I'd gotten a job, um, you know, like a, a career style job, um, before actually something I'd skipped over is like when I graduated high school, I went to fine arts to sort of hone my art skills. Right. Um, did you go to Emily Carr I, or? No, I went to Okanagan University College. It okay. was at that point a satellite for UVic. So the fine arts program was from UVic. I never completed the fine arts program, uh, but I, I went through for a while and um, then ended up dropping out of it because I they, they were an, sort of anti-comic there. Yeah. Um, they're very much not into folks doing comics. Uh me wanting, like, you know, wanting a career in comics was not anything that was ever uh, supported anywhere around me other than my friends or, or the people I would talk to at the comic shop. Uh, you know, like I said, in fine arts, there was no support for it. They're like, learn graphic graphic design instead. Um, I did learn some valuable stuff in fine arts and that, you know, one of my professors was like, you know, take a year away from drawing comics, focus on other art and then come back to comics and bring what you learned from those other things, those other fields. Great advice. Um, into comics. And I think even for writing, that's a, it, it's strong advice. Cause I think if you only read comics and you become a comic book writer, you have a, uh, you might have a deep knowledge of comics and comics history and, and, and stories that have been told, but it, you're sort of, when you're writing often just regurgitating stuff that's, that's already been done. Uh, so I think looking outside um, of comics and sort of bringing those those influences in, and even just in comics, look outside of North American comics, look at manga, look at uh, European uh, books, you know, by, by folks like Mobius or, or, or GP or whatever. Um, but, and then just expand, you know, and, and take from film and take from novels and nonfiction, et cetera, just, you know, as a writer, you can almost constantly have to be reading and, and sort of fueling the machine. Um, so anyway. When, so what did you get? So you, you're going through this journey, 2010. Yeah. So was Image, did you propose a, uh, a well, script to Image? What, what happened first was that in 2010, I, I, on my birthday, I was like really frustrated because, you know, I was, you know, I've been doing comics for 16 years and not, you know, it was a great hobby, and, you know, I, I was part of, like, the scene in Vancouver of folks who were making comics, but, like, professionally, I was nowhere. Um, and so I decided at that day that I realized I didn't like drawing. I, I didn't find illustration satisfying. And the thing I'd learned over the years is that I really liked the writing side of things. And over the years, I'd taken, you know, some writing courses at, you know, the local college or... And I've read every writing book that I could get my hands on just because I want to improve my writing skills. And I hit a point where I, I much preferred writing uh, to drawing. So in 2010, I stopped um, drawing just like cold turkey. 
I started focusing on my writing and because I was part of this comics community in Vancouver, I was able to, to connect with a couple artists who were willing to draw these stories that I, I was writing. I started, had started a new series called murder book, uh, which were short crimes, uh, crime stories. Yeah. Got them. And like, They're good. yeah, using the, and the term murder book comes from like, it's a, a murder book is like a homicide detectives dossier on, on the case that they're currently inter, you know, uh, investigating. And so I started doing those and just for a couple of years, I, uh, just started doing these really short crime stories that I was putting up online for free for folks to read. And then I would print up copies to bring to conventions and such. Um, and I did that for, you know, five years, but along the way in, in 2012, uh, uh, I guess in 2011, 2010, 2011 through doing murder book, I met, a, a, an artist named Michael Walsh based out of Hamilton. And he and I both felt like we were ready for prime time, you know, like we, we were really going hard at trying to get published. And he and I had come up with this, this plan that we, we would pitch comics to image together. And we had a year long plan, uh, where I would come up with a, a, a concept for a comic series, yeah. uh, work out the concept. Uh, write the first five pages. When you're pitching to a, a publisher, you need to have uh, the cover, five pages of art that's completely drawn, uh, colored, lettered, all that sort of stuff. Um, a pitch document, which basically tells the whole, like what your plan is for the, for the series. And that's usually over one or two pages. It's not a huge document. Uh, and you have to, you know, have, obviously if someone's drawing the first five pages, you would have to script them. Um, so I would, you know, come up with the concept, come up with the pitch document, write five pages of script, hand it off to Michael. Michael would start drawing it. And while he was drawing it, I would start on the, another pitch. And so our plan was to try and get a pitch out every six to eight weeks, which is wow. a grind. That's a yeah. real grind. Wow. Like that's, but we're like, both of us are like a year from now. This, we started this in 2011 and we were like a year from now we want to have an image book and we're just going to just keep hustling until we make it happen. We're just going to manifest this. And so we did that. Um, our first pitch was something called five years, which was a straight crime series. Uh, and that actually, it didn't get green, you know, it didn't get picked up by image, but it came close, which is, it, it, you know, there's sort of varying levels of rejections. And, and one of those is like just a cold rejection where you get a form letter. Uh, and the other is sort of where like the publisher actually takes some time. And it's like, Hey, you know, almost like, this is like, we considered this, but realize it's not right for us or whatever. So our second pitch was a series called comeback, which is sort of a, a blending of genres. It's like a time travel slash crime thing. And, um, so I'm going to I'm going to insert something here. So sure. the listeners uh, got an opportunity to pick this book up. Like it's it's an awesome read. Like I I remember picking it up off the shelf, and you and I had talked prior to that, and I thought, wow, this is really good stuff. And I couldn't imagine how you were not, or I wasn't aware of how you weren't able to be with the the big two after that uh, that book was written. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I appreciate it. But yeah, that that was the one that got picked up. You know, that came out in November. Of 2012 um and because uh, i'd spent so long sort of trying to break into comics um what happens when when comeback got picked up um uh, johnny christmas and i like had studio like i had a studio space above uh what's now called eighth dimension comics in in vancouver there's a sort of a hub of where a, com a lot of comic creators uh, have studio space there's a really cheap studio space above those uh, stores there yeah and johnny christmas was down the hall from me he had a studio space he just moved to town and um i'd seen his work and it was great you know we tried pitching some stuff that didn't work out but as soon as i got comeback ready and it was greenlit an image and mike and i started working on it i hit johnny up again i'm like look uh, i have a book coming out next year why don't you and i put together a pitch so that this book does well, we'll pitch it immediately. As soon as I have like sales numbers, right? We can pitch this book to image and, and, you know, maybe get this thing going. And so when comeback came out, 
Michael and I lucked out in that there was uh, around 2012, there was this sort of um, renewed interest in image. And so their sales started to just steadily increase. And our book came out. I remember when our book came out, the, you know, I talked to other creators and they're like, you know, expect that you'd sell about three or 4,000 copies. Uh, you know, you might get enough money on the first few issues that, you know, Michael can pocket some money, but it's not going to, they're going to be huge. Right. And our book came out and number one sold about 11,000. Wow. And I remember my publisher calling me up and being like, who are you? Like, <laughs> like what's going on? Yeah. Uh, but the whole thing is we just got lucky in that we hit at the time that there was renewed interest in image and sales kind of across the board started to rise. And so when comeback came in and did, you know, almost three, uh, four times what the publisher was expecting, uh, I was like, okay, cool. I got this other book here. Are you interested in this as well? And immediately was able to get a green light on that. What was the other uh, book? Which, what's, what's the next book? That was sheltered. So that right. was sheltered with me and Johnny Christmas. Uh, which is this weird sort of pre-apocalyptic book about survivalists. Um, and so, you know, I think it, it, I was able to line it up that Comeback was just a five-issue thing and Sheltered landed the month after Comeback wrapped. So from that moment on, I just kept hustling because I spent so long trying to break into the industry um, and finally got my foot in the door uh, that I wasn't about to sort of let go. And uh, so I, I just kind of went into overdrive and, and putting together projects, knowing that I had a little bit of, of heat behind me and, and not wanting to, to lose that momentum. So I, I just kept working because what, one thing about comics and, and publishing is you can get a first book in, but the real triumph is getting your second book in. Um, I, some people tend to rest on their laurels when they get their first book and not worry about it and then not they don't start thinking about their second book until the end of their first is in sight where, you know, the writing's on the wall. Uh, but I didn't want to be that. I wanted to sort of get through and, and just keep pushing. And, um, you know, was lucky enough that, uh, I, you know, got, did come back, did sheltered right on its heels. And then while sheltered was going, I pitched two other books, uh, the field and the mantle, which, you know, came out to varying degrees of success. And then when Sheltered wrapped, it went 15 issues, which was sort of the plan from the start. Uh, I pitched another book called The Violent, which is a short crime or a five issue crime series that uh, came out just after. The field was, uh, uh, I, you know what? I it, Again, I mean, I've read everything you've done. The field is, uh, is an awesome read. I, I can't help but think that that would be a, a really good property in the movies or, you know, at least, a, it, you know, an eight option. Yeah, I did get an option for a while. Oh. It's a, the field is such a weird one in that, like, I'm a huge movie junkie. Like, I grew up, uh, I, like, I was that kid who went down to the video store uh, on Mondays when the video store had the five movies for $5 deal, <laughs> and I would rent ten, 10 movies and watch them over the course of a week. Um, you know you're dating yourself. Year. Yeah, I know. But I'm a huge fan of, like, you know, I grew up just um, – absorbing horror films uh and any sort of like weird genre or or, or cult film uh I, I love that sort of stuff and uh so the field was always meant to be like you know when i pitched it i described it as that weird movie uh again this is kind of dated because this doesn't happen as much anymore but it, it used to be like i have insomnia so you know growing up i'd turn on the tv at like two o'clock in the morning on a saturday and they'd have just the weirdest films playing on CT, uh, city TV. <laughs> uh, and I wanted this film to feel like this weird, or this, sorry, this comic to feel like a weird movie. You yeah. Across at yeah. Two o'clock in the morning. Well, you got it. It's, it's a great read. Like it's a, it's a really good book. Thanks. Hey, so you're, you're doing stuff for image. When did the, uh -huh. uh, when did one of the big two come knocking? Was it DC that noticed you first or was it Marvel? It was Marvel. And it was a very weird, and and a, a situation that I could could not be replicated. Uh, what had happened is so during all this, I'm also going out to comic conventions, uh, so I'm flying all over the place doing these comic conventions. Which, if you want to, it's not. You don't have to do this if you're trying to break into the industry, but it certainly helps to get out to comic conventions and meet other creators and sort of get your face seen. Yeah. Um, 
I've, I've always found that it's easier for an editor to remember you sort of who you are if, if they can put a face to the name. Because um, sometimes, you know, I lettered before this for 10 years. I was doing comic book lettering. And I worked with editors that I still to this day don't know what they look like. But anyway, I was going to conventions and the first, so the first convention I did with, with um, when Comeback came out was New York Comic Con. And then that was the end of convention season. So my second convention with uh, Comeback coming out was when the, just when the last issue was coming out, we did a show in Chicago called C2E2, which a show for me wasn't, wasn't a huge success. It was, it was an okay show. Um, but I had copies of murder book, this crime series that I was doing. Uh, I'd printed out uh, copies of the first, second and third issues, uh, which each had like two short stories. Right. And I was at C2E2. It was the end of the show. And I literally just had like two copies, three copies of each issue of, of murder book left. And I'm, I was like, I'm, I'm not going to pack these and bring them up to Canada with me. So as I was packing up and the show was sort of clearing out, I just sort of, I just turned around and handed a set to people walking by. I was like, Hey, do you want some pre comics, pre crime comics? Here you go. <laughs> okay. And I handed it to three, three different people and I never thought anything of it again. And then about two months later, I get an email, uh, from Marvel and, unbeknownst to me one of those three people that i handed copies of murder book to was a marvel editor um, <laughs> and i didn't i didn't know that it wasn't planned it was just it just so happened so and she she read murder book and she really liked them and so and was currently looking for somebody to do a couple of fill-in issues on um on uh, secret avengers because nick spencer was writing it at the time and it was a uh, the two issues were an event tie-in and he was uh, taking a, a two issues off to focus on where the story was going to be going afterwards. So, so you, it was just a fill-in gig. I'm just going to, just so I understand it, so you're at the end of this convention and you end up handing out like three or four copies just to people. So you're ready to go. And you end up handing one out to one of the editors at Marvel, like just, yeah, just walking by. Didn't... With no idea that she, who, who she was. Um, That's karma, buddy. That's like doing the good thing and it coming back to you, right? It that... was it was it was shocking, but uh, yeah. And anyway, I ended up yeah on these two issues filling in in 2013, and this is sort of like um, I think one of the things I did there is I was so excited and so nervous to be working for Marvel um, that one of the things I did that I feel is sort of like a a bit of a cautionary thing is um, I think I then started writing what I thought Marvel wanted versus uh, one of the things I've learned since is that if, if they're coming and hiring you is because they like your unique voice. And so they don't want you to write something that feels like there are other books that are already on the shelf. They want you to bring that uniqueness to the thing. Uh, to the properties. And I think for those first two issues that I did, I, I didn't do that. I, I, I was like, okay, you know, I'm writing a Marvel book. I need it to feel like other Marvel books. <clears throat> and uh, I think, you know, what happened is I wrote those two issues and then I didn't do anything else for Marvel for two years after that. And uh, then two years later, I got like a one shot on this uh, Secret Wars uh, issue. And uh, then I tried to put, inject a bit more of my voice into it and try to make it fun. Um, and then again, it was like another year later uh, in 2016 before they approached me again to do something. So there's a lot of this, like, you know, uh, uh, now I'm living out in, in, in Halifax and I'm good friends with a, another Marvel writer named Jed McKay who lives here. He's currently writing Black Cat and he's sort of all over the place right now. He's, he's doing a lot of stuff. He's really blowing up. But he had like similar scenario where he did little short bits for marvel here and there over like an eight-year process you know he would get a, a short story thrown to him once every two years and it you know he it wasn't until i think he did um i'm trying to remember what the book it is that he wrote that really sort of hit for him i think it might have been like a spider-man fill-in story or something uh, so there's a lot of those sort of like what feel like failures along the way like you know they bring me they bring me on to write two issues and I, at that time i'm like here it is i've made it and then i don't hear from them for two years so right did you, like did you go to dc then is that after you did that i did do some stuff in D, uh, dc uh so 2013 i did the marvel stuff 
2014, I just did some creator-owned work. I, I did some work for Boom Studios. I think at that point I was writing their Sons of Anarchy comic. Okay. Um, That's right, you did. That's good, too. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. I did that for a year. And then in 2015, DC brought me in as part of a writing team to work on a series called Batman and Robin Eternal, which was like a, I believe it was like, uh, I want to say it was a 24-issue thing over the course of three months. It came out weekly. Right. So uh, so maybe that was closer to six months, I guess. Um, anyway, so it was a, a 24-issue thing uh, that I did at DC in 2015 and again like uh, that one was a weird because i was part of a writing team we were doing writing room style so that's a thing where you you don't have as much opportunity to sort of exert your own voice into it right because you're really trying to make it a seamless read for for the audience um and at that point i was like again it felt like okay i made it you know i'm gonna do some stuff dc dc had um asked me to write an issue of batman um which is huge which is yeah, it was a huge opportunity, but it's something that they call uh, inventory issues there. So they'll ask you to write a, an issue, but it doesn't have like a release date. They don't know when it's coming out. It's essentially, um, I don't know if they do this as much anymore, but back in 2015 they did, where they would bank this issue. So they would have some uh, writer write an issue, and they would bank it for a month where they were running behind with scripts. If they were getting behind in scripts and needed a, a reason to get to buy themselves more time, they could just grab one of these inventory issues, which is meant to be like a completely standalone issue that could happen at any point in Batman's history. And they would have, you know, bring in an artist to draw it just to buy, you know, the current writer more time to sort of get ahead or, or just deal with whatever sort of, uh, you know, scheduling issues they, they had on their plate. And so I wrote that and, and it never ended up coming out. They don't, I, as far as I know, don't really do um, do that anymore like go to that slush pile and grab scripts so yeah that happened in 2015 and then it was like another point where it just like in 2016 nothing was happening um, and uh, when I got a call from Marvel to work on Bullseye in 2016 I, the call literally came through while I was applying for part time jobs just because I was like it felt like, you know, it'd been several months. I wasn't getting responses from editors. I thought maybe my, you know, I'd had my shot at, at writing comics and it was over and I was just going to go work uh, a job, like get back into the kind of work I'd been doing before right. maybe. But, uh, I like, I literally had my resume uploaded to a site and was about to hit send when I got a, a, a message through Twitter of all places, a direct message from an editor that just said, what's your phone number? Uh, and so I sent it and I was like, okay, let me just hold on a sec. And uh, <clears throat> I didn't send my resume in. This editor called me five minutes later and was like, um, he's like, uh, Axel Alonso, who was the head of Marvel wow. time, yeah, had just huge. read uh, my collection of murder book. Because in the meantime, uh, sometime in 2015, Dark Horse had collected all the murder book stories I'd I'd released up until that point and released sort of an omnibus edition. And I guess Axel Alonso had come across it. He's a big crime fiction fan and had just walked up to an editor and said, look, you're doing a bullseye book, put this guy on it. And so they put me on a bullseye book, which is a five issue miniseries. Yeah. It's pretty dark. Uh, you can see the crime. Uh, yeah. It's, I liked into that really hard. I was, uh, and I, it's funny because I'd, I'd spent two weeks on Bullseye. I wanted to make sure it just sung. It was a great pitch and everything. So I spent two weeks writing a pitch. That's the, the amount of time they gave me. And the pitch is like for them, it's more of an outline, I guess, like uh, a, a sort of step-by-step -step of what I'm going to do for these five, is five issues. And uh, I was about to, I was ready to send it off. And then the night before, uh, I had read a, a comic that featured Bullseye that had come out recently that basically invalidated everything that I had in my five issue outline. Oh. Um, and I guess for whatever reason, uh, when I got all the information from, from Marvel about sort of what, what they were looking, there was a couple sort of things they wanted me to hit in the series, but largely it was up to me. Um, this thing already actually hit those things. And I guess there was just, through whatever they hadn't realized um, uh, my editors hadn't realized so 
I realized that my whole outline was no good. And this was the day before I was spent, supposed to send it in. This is after two weeks of working oh, on it. Dad. And so I, I stayed up all night writing a brand new five issue outline. And then I, in the morning, I sent it to, you know, Michael Walsh, who was the artist on Comeback. He and I are really good friends. We talk almost daily. <clears throat> and so I sent it to him. And I, I was like, you know, what do you think? And he sent me a note back that I think saved me where he was like, look, this is actually a really good outline. But this feels like a Marvel book and it doesn't feel like an Ed Brisson book. Oh, and I'm like, good advice. Great. Okay. I'm like, awesome. This is like, you know, I had six o'clock in the morning. Uh, yeah, about six o'clock in the morning, I think, uh, that I got that. And that of the day that the outline was due. I'm like, okay, okay. And so I just sat down and figured out, like, what would be a really good crime story. And I had, you know, it was six o'clock Pacific. And I had, um, which is nine o'clock Eastern, which is where Marvel's based. And I had basically eight hours to come up with a brand new pitch to get it in by end of day by the time it was it was due because obviously this is my first project I don't want to be late yeah so I spent four hours so I went from like two weeks on the first one to 12 hours on the second one to four hours on the third one. Oh wow um, but four hours, I banged out this brand new outline. I sent it to Walsh, Michael Walsh, and he was like, this is an Ed Brisson story. And I sent it in and Marvel was like, yes, this is exactly the kind of thing we wanted. So thankfully, you know, I was able to come up with something really quickly that, that worked, uh, which is all largely like, if you read Bullseye, I would say 80% of what I came up with in that those four hours is still there in, in, in the book. Obviously this book is in a, you know, the, the outline is just an outline. So it's not, you know, so, hugely detailed. So I, I obviously expanded on it when I was writing it. So now you've got, you've got that going, you've had this long journey and now you're at a point where you're getting, if I'm not mistaken, you're probably getting more work than you really want because we had talked earlier and they're giving you, probably you know more books than you really want you, you want to kind of kick back a little bit and uh yeah enjoy well, that, took a, that took a while when that happened i was writing bullseye and it got so i was writing it as of july of 2016 and it was supposed to come out i think in october or november of 2016 yeah but they got pushed back to february of 2017 and so usually you know if you're getting more work from marvel it's based on the work you've done which a lot of editors don't a lot of the editors around the office aren't going to see until it's actually published. So I, you know, it was late 2016. We just moved to Kelowna uh, from Vancouver and sort of had tapped all our resources. So I, I was broke, <laughs> like so broke then. But I was like, I, I had enough points on my credit card to fly to New York. And I had a friend who lived in New York whose couch I could crash on. Uh, so I managed in October to go to New York Comic Con. Um, and basically at very little cost myself because uh, otherwise I just wouldn't have been able to do it. Right. And my whole point of going there is I just wanted to get some face time with Axel Alonso, uh, who's running Marvel, because I knew he was happy with the work I was doing in Bullseye. And so I managed to run into him on the last day um, and talk to him just for like five minutes um, and just thanked him for the opportunity for Bullseye um, and just said, you know, like anything else coming up, I'd love to pitch other projects so i had to get a facetime in and i think like i got back from new york and about two weeks later they phoned and offered me an iron fist ongoing series and then from there it was kind of like that's when it started to the sort of uh, snowball i started to get lots of offers and and was working around the clock right after iron fist started uh is when they offered me an exclusive contract which means that it's like me and Marvel uh, are going steady with one another. I can't uh, work, work for, for other publishers, uh, but in exchange, they guarantee to me uh, uh, a certain amount of work over the course of two years. Um, and so that was my first exclusive, you know, in 2019, I signed up for a second exclusive, which is continuing now. Um, but uh, so, yeah, it, it hit a point, like you were saying, where I felt I it's, it's hard when you like spend that much time not 
uh, like wanting to work for Marvel or wanting to work for bigger publishers and just getting like these scraps yeah. where you have these good times and then you have like, you know, it's, it's feast or famine, right? Like you have these long stretches of having no work and all of a sudden some work comes in. So then when the work does start to really roll in, it's really hard to say no to work, right? Because yeah. you spent so long being broke, you spent so long just wanting to do the work. And so a hard, another hard lesson that I learned is is I was taking on not everything that they, they sent my way, but I was taking on maybe more than I should have. So yeah, in early 2020, I'd had a talk with the talent guy over at Marvel, who, who's a great dude, um, and just had this sort of conversation where like I felt like I was maybe a bit overworked and I wanted to cut back uh, on the amount of titles I was writing and just take a little, spend more time on fewer projects and put more of myself into those projects. So, and, uh, yep. we, oh, I'm sorry. We, so with all of this, all of yep. these years, the, the thing that kind of stands out for me, and I'm, I'm just thinking, is that you, you never gave up on your dream, did you? Like, I mean, this was a passion for you. You never gave up at all. You know, I, things just kept happening for you. I didn't give up. I, I, I will say like, you know, um, I know a lot of people have tried to break into comics who, who just haven't been able to or have, like, similar to, to what I had early on, these brief moments of, of, you know, interest from big two publishers that just don't go anywhere. Like, they'll get, you know, one or two stories. Uh, and so the one, the one bit of advice I always hear uh, that uh, I hate is when uh, people... Uh, who want to be an artist, who want to be a writer, don't have backup plans. Uh, there's a, a saying that uh, I'm going to probably butcher, but if you have, it's something along the lines, if you have a fallback plan, then you'll fall back on that plan, um, which implies that like it somehow takes the drive out of you doing you know, the thing that you really want to do by having a backup plan. And for me, I went to, you know, after dropping out of fine arts so several years later, I went back to, to school and ended up becoming a, um, a graphic designer and, and technical writer for uh, a health and safety organization, which was like, you know, that's a, it was a career style job where if comics never worked out, uh, I, I would have a career, I would have a job. And I do think that it, for folks getting into creative fields, um, that aren't sort of corporate creative fields, which would be like graphic design or whatever. If you're getting into the art style side of things, I, I always think that it's important to have some sort of other thing that you can fall back on, you know, um, whether you, you know, like Jed McKay, who's doing a ton of, uh, of Marvel stuff right now, he was a teacher beforehand. And so, you know, if it didn't work out, he still had teaching. If for whatever reason, the rug gets pulled out from, him or or the industry he can go back to teaching yep. and so i don't think that having a backup plan is equals giving up on your dream uh i hear that a lot of times usually from people who don't have a backup plan and to me that always feels like them rationalizing their decision rather than it actually being solid decision decision making um so I, I i just always like to throw that up front as a cautionary tale because most folks who try and get into comics don't like it's a, it's a really tough industry uh, to get into. And I, I think something like three to 5% of folks who try and get in actually manage to get in. And of those, maybe only half are, are able to stick around for, you know, long enough to consider it a career. A lot of folks get in and they have one or two really good years and then they just get washed out. Either they get, they get burnt out because it's a lot of work or they just um, don't find their audience or they find an audience for a short while and then and then that audience moves on to something else. So it's a really tough thing and it's it's all super subjective so it's it's hard to um, hard to know whether where you're going to be in a year from now. I don't know where I'm going to be a year or two from now. Uh, everything can dry up in a year. Uh, so always having that thing to back to fall back onto is all, I think always a good a good plan and you know that's not saying like do something completely different like become an accountant or a lawyer but uh you know there's plenty of um jobs that can
can use sort of similar similar training. Like I said, I was a graphic designer. And you ultimately, and yeah, ultimately, ultimately, you got to pay the bills, right? And now you've got uh, right. you've got a, a daughter and you've got a wife, and I mean, she's working. But the reality is, as a family, you need to make some kind of financial contribution, right, to get lifestyle. Absolutely. At least. So the thing that's very cool about this is just how uh, I mean. It's kind of funny when you start thinking about the way your uh, the way your journey occurred. Just like giving out that that's crazy. Giving out the uh, the murder books to uh, you know an editor. Um, you you did the FaceTime thing. We actually went up and pitched to somebody. Like all those are really cool stories. So hey, I was going to ask you. So you've got some um, aspiring artists or writers, and you've got a project out right now. And uh, we had talked about it. And uh, this, I guess this could be an avenue for somebody that's trying to get into the field and maybe not necessarily wanting to put in the time that you did. And you, you maybe can explain it to you and as well pitch what you're doing because it's cool. I mean, it's a, sure. it's a cool book. So go ahead. I'll, I'll let you do that. And uh, just before I get to that, I'm just going to do like a, a real quick bit of advice for anyone who's thinking about getting into comics yeah, as either sure. a writer or an artist. Uh, the one pitfall that I see all the time is, especially with writers, um, they want to start really large. Like they want to start with like a 20 issue series that they want to write and self publish and find an artist to do, or like in some cases, like I've talked to aspiring writers who have this like 200 issue thing planned out. Right. Uh, which is, it's just not going to happen. Either, either one isn't going to happen when you're starting out. So the one bit of advice, if I, if I can give to aspiring writers and aspiring artists is to really start small. Uh, when I did murder book, there were like five to 20 page stories. I would say if you're starting out first time, just do five page stories where you write <clears throat> and, and complete the story. And it's a story with a beginning, a middle and an end, not a to be continued story. Uh, just keep it five pages, give yourself two weeks to write it one week to edit it. Uh, if you're writing, um, and just kind of do these stories repeatedly until, you kind of find your voice because it takes a while to find your voice. If you're going to do a 20 issue series uh, for your first thing, the way that you write it, you know, at issue 10 and then again at issue 20 is going to be vastly different from how you write at issue one. So it's better to work on short stories to find your voice, to work those sort of things out, to figure out your storytelling uh, sensibilities, to figure out how to tell a story. Um, and it's the same with artists, you know, like it's much easier uh, to complete a five issue thing. Uh, it's, it's a much smaller bite to, to take and helps you hone your skills, helps you develop. And an important thing I think that, that many people don't realize is uh, having that five-page thing, there is that sense of completion when you've done it. There's a sense of satisfaction. There's a sense of, I did this. Here's a thing that I can show the world. Um, rather than this 200-issue thing that's going to take you six years to complete. Uh, I think just focusing on doing these small stories not getting caught up in world building. I see so many writers who spend, you know, five years developing the world that their story is supposed to take in. You can't see me doing air quotes here, but I am. Um, no, it's, it's and, and, and it's, it's weirdly a sense of procrastination from getting to the actual meat of, of telling the story. Just tell short, quick stories that are, that are satisfying. Uh, and one thing you learn is like telling a five page story is actually much harder because you have to really um, hone it, like really distill it down to, to what you need, what what the story is about. Um, anyway, so that rants over. The thing that you, you're talking about right now, so I think probably by the time this is up, uh, my campaign will be over, but uh, I, I'm, I've got a book up on Kickstarter right now called Catch and Release, which is a longer murder book story that we're releasing in a hardcover. Um, but for for folks who are looking to get into the industry and not having much luck getting in with Image or, or Marvel or DC, I think Kickstarter provides a great format where you can show the project that you want to develop. Uh, for those who don't know what Kickstarter is, it's, it's a crowdfunding site. Uh, so you can post a project that you want to do. It usually runs for about a month. Uh, you set up a, a system of rewards, which is usually like a copy of the book when it's completed, uh, maybe some original art or, uh, you know, a chance to appear in the book or whatever. You, you, if you take a moment and look at other Kickstarters and see the sort of rewards that they offer, you get a sense of what might be suitable for what you're doing. But uh, you can post your project there. 
um, give all the details, and it then sort of just goes wide. And folks who might be interested in funding and, and, and looking at your project and going, hey, this is something I believe in, can throw a few bucks your way um, to help you fund this project. And it's a way, it's almost a way, uh, I know Kickstarter hates when you say it's a way of pre-selling something, but it, it certainly is a way of pre-selling something. And it is a good way of building up sort of a body of work uh, without having to sort of bankrupt yourself. Right. Um, and I think it, it's something that is being used now more by established pros who have sort of niche projects that they want to do that maybe don't fit neatly with a, a, a publisher that they can just go and take this directly to readers. So it's a pretty handy site. Uh, it is, you know, usually your, your project will last a month. Uh, you do have to do a lot of promotion to sort of um, get it out there and let people know about it. Um, but uh, if you can get that funding done and, and get your book paid for and, and release it, then it's just a way to sort of build your, your catalog of work. You know what? That's, that's actually pretty good information for some of the, uh, the people who want to get into the industry. And uh, it gives them an opportunity of at least getting some work out there, right? Absolutely. But your stories, uh, yeah, it's pretty amazing. I didn't know all that stuff. Like we have talked before and I had no idea that it was... Uh, you know, the journey had taken you to the extent it had. But that's, I think what, what's cool is that you've kind of arrived, like you're at a position right now where, you know, you're uh, content with what you're doing. And if, I guess if these movies the and the properties start paying off, would you, uh, would you eventually like move to California, like Los Angeles and stuff? And No. Do, no. <laughs> <laughs> I have less than zero interest in doing that. You know, uh, we're in Halifax right now. Uh, I, I, I'm happy out here. I like, uh, you know, Halifax, even like the, the pace of life out here is, is slower than Vancouver. Right. Uh, I love Vancouver. Like I loved living in Vancouver. It was really hard to leave, but, uh, you know, I like this sort of slower pace of life. I do not, uh, I, I, I not cut out for that sort of, uh, okay. uh, constant business meetings and and all that sort of stuff and especially so many meetings that this really don't amount to anything uh so i'm happy to stay out here you know if if a show um you know a, a couple of the books i've written where they've been optioned or shopped around as tv shows i've always asked that um uh, tried to get my name as as a, one of the potential sort of writers on the show so there there is maybe some future where i go out there and spend some time right uh there uh and california is great i love california uh if i had to live anywhere in the states you know i think california would be high up on the list but i think um i think i'm happy staying up here in canada but it would definitely probably spend some time down there uh you know weeks at a time or whatever but Doing this I, I don't think I, I couldn't see myself permanently moving there you know the it, it's funny because you were saying you know that the pace and everything and you're you're so generous with your time i mean you're you're low-key but i know at the conventions that you've worked um people will come up and there'll often be celebrities there then it's like you know they'll sign a book and go next and it's just like a long line and you always take the time to talk to the people and uh you're really engaging and, uh, you know, that, that kind of makes you popular. You've got like a following just because, you know, you're a good person. Um, I don't know if you remember, you're, I got, I, at a comic convention, you were the reason why I got 90 seconds of fame. So what ends up happening is when you were, uh, you were in Vancouver, that would have been a couple, was it two years ago? The con was, I think it was, we've lost. I, I've been to the Vancouver one a few times and with the pandemic, everything feels like Shut it was down. 10 years ago. Yeah. So. I'm trying to, I'm trying to figure that out. So I was sitting beside you. I'd come down to visit. So I was sitting beside you behind the table and you had a lineup of people and you know, as, as you do, you know, you're, you're very gracious with your time and you're talking to everybody. And so I started talking to a fellow that was like third in line. He was talking. I said, so how are you doing? Did you buy anything? And he goes, yeah, yeah. And he, smiles at me and he puts his book down and he looks at me and he goes can you sign this for me <laughs> and i'm looking at him and i go you you want me to sign your book and he goes yeah if you don't mind and i said sure i said but did you know who i am and he goes no and i said nor does anyone else in here i said i'm a high school teacher and he looks at me and he goes give me my book back uh, <laughs> he, pulls, nice. he pulls away and i had a good laugh with that you know so 
That's was, very funny. Yeah, it is. It's my 90 seconds of, of fame, but that, that's because right. of you. You know what? I, uh, I appreciate everything, Ed. You know, I wish you the best. Um, you're right. a good person and uh, you, you deserve the best. So, you know what? Uh, say hi to Janet and uh, Tegan. And I hope, uh, again, I hope things really roll for you with the, uh, the, the movie thing. As I said before, right. I'll be, uh, if you've got one of those movies coming, I'll be at the premiere. All right? Awesome. Hey, All right, thanks a lot. You take care. Thanks for your time. Thank you. No problem. So that'll be it for today. Once again, I'd like to thank Ed Brisson for sharing his journey with us. This is Dave Rizicki with Nathan Rivers. This has been The Heart of Teaching. Thanks for listening. Be safe, be well, and peace. Spider-Man, Spider-Man, does whatever a spider can. Spins a web any size, catches thieves just like flies. Look out, here comes the Spider-Man.